for confirming. There we go. Okay. Now, uh, that's the agenda. So, again, the concept of why did we start the protective measures to begin with? And it was to slow the rate of people going into the hospital so that the hospital system, the healthcare system, could keep pace with the individuals who need a hospital level of care. And so you see here, well, it's self-explanatory. You have seen it many times before, but if we look at the number of cases and if we look at with, without protective measures and with protective measures, that the idea is that we want to be able to keep the number of cases at a number and at of a rate or pace going into the healthcare system so that it can uh, keep up with it without having to reduce the standard of care and without persons needing to travel to other hospitals outside of their local community. Also, coronaviruses, as a reminder, there are seven known coronaviruses. Four of them are uh, known as, or we call, the common cold. And then the other three include the MERS, CoV, Middle East Respiratory Virus, um, SARS, SARS-1. That was before we knew there was going to be a second. Thanks, Dave. Um, sounds like we have a live microphone there. Um, and then um, the seventh one is this... Uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it's all of our hope that over time that we will get to a point where this virus doesn't cause any more problems than the common cold, which is to say we don't even pay any attention or are even necessarily aware that it's anything other than just, oh, maybe I feel a little sniffly one day. Um, but we are not there yet. So one of the things that has been challenging between when we last met, November 23rd, and today is that uh, December 4th or December 3rd was the last time that we had data from the Maryland Department of Health up until uh, just last week. And in fact, the data is still being restored and still being restored for the county level data. Um, so the state says that about 95% of the state-level surveillance data has been restored, but we are still waiting for uh, complete information. So for those of you who have, who have been looking at the uh, numbers of cases and the numbers of deaths that have been reported in the last 24 hours, if you've been looking this week, one of the days this week, it was the catch-up for the deaths from before. Um, I don't have the dates on those, uh, but I think... Well, we'll look at the slides later to see what it looks like when you see uh, that large number. And if you try to break that down over some days, you'll see that it's, uh, it does look like it's more than what we had been experiencing. Uh, so just to give you information like before, so the CDC community transmission level data, this is showing you the whole U.S. now because this is different from what it looked like back in November 23rd. Um, and then this is to show you for Omicron, because a lot of people are talking about that variant, uh, even more so than before. So this is uh, the most recent week. It's the week ending, uh, 1225, that uh, from their modeling, the proportion of circulating variants is just above 50%. And from what I've heard from a verbal report at the state, that the samples that the state has conducted uh, from two weeks ago is at about that, a little bit more than 50%. So it sounds like that is Maryland's experience from the samples that they have uh, genetically typed. Also for a comparison from November 23rd, we had a case rate 
of 21 per 100,000 and a positivity rate of 6.45. Now, December 30th, we have a case rate. Um, oh, I'll show you that on another slide, uh, but it's over 100. And a positivity rate uh, went from 6.45 to 23.58. So this is an example of the um, trend. So going back to April 2020, so you can see where we've been. This was our peak last year. When we look at the percent positive rate, so that's out of all the tests um, that have uh, been performed, uh, what percent of them are positive. And you see um, statewide is the green, Frederick is the black line here, and you see that we are at a percent positivity where we, you know, far exceeds where we were last year. And then also when we look at the case rate per 100,000, because that's like, so how many people is it impacting? Um, and these are, again, tests that are reported, test results that are reported. We know that one of the big differences between last January and now is that they're all the at-home test kits that people are using. And uh, not many of them are being well, I don't know for sure how many of them are being reported. I suspect that a large percent of the at-home test kits are not even being reported. So keeping that in mind, when we look at the case rate per 100,000, these are the test results that have been reported, and we are uh, well above um, 100 uh, uh, cases per 100,000 uh, daily. Uh, day, well, this is seven-day moving average, and right, so it's even higher than that because our seven-day moving average has us above 100. Um, so when we look at the confirmed cases over time, this brings us, uh, we have the uh, December time period where the data feed wasn't occurring, oh, let me go back, where the data feed wasn't occurring and then the data feed had started. And this is the 24-hour change look. So for those of you who track the 24-hour change, that's why all of a sudden there was a sudden increase yesterday or the day before, because it was the catch-up for the 24-hour change. Now the now, when we go back to this, though, uh, these are reflecting the data that occurred over time, even though the data itself wasn't being uh, fed to our dashboard. Um, and then the same thing with the deaths over time. You can see where uh, it was this December 3rd time period where the data had stopped uh, being transmitted, and now we have the data being transmitted again. Um, so I am waiting to see what the dates of the deaths are and to see whether it's more than what we had before. And it's looking like we, it's probably more than what we had on a daily average. Because if you remember, we had this long time in Frederick where uh, in contrast to some of the other jurisdictions where they had a peak that went up and then went back down like Montgomery County and Howard County, um, for us, we had our peak. And then we, we went down, but we uh, stayed at a pretty stable rate. Um, and you'll see our deaths were more or less stable for a long time period. Uh, I know some people talked about, well, looking at the cases and where are they by zip code. I want to say that these are cumulative cases. So the cases since 2020, when you look at that map, and you need to know the Frederick zip codes. Unfortunately, this one doesn't show the county boundaries, which, make, which makes it a lot easier for people to see. Uh, and, and these are just cases not adjusted for the population rate. So vaccinations, I'd like to be able to present uh, some of the, the good news and the news that's been very helpful for us, which is uh, vaccinated population, where our total population 
we're almost at 68% fully vaccinated, but we know that um, not everybody can be vaccinated. And so uh, due to age eligibility, so when we look at the population over 65, 94% have been vaccinated, over 18, 83%, and percent population greater than or equal to 12, 82%. And now here is the vaccine by zip code. And in this case, this one is the percent of the population fully vaccinated. Um, as I've mentioned before, you'll see the upper areas that border Pennsylvania have lower vaccination percents indicated here. And I'm not sure if part of that is due to uh, the people who've been vaccinated in Pennsylvania or been vaccinated by Pennsylvania healthcare systems. That data may not yet be available to the state, um, or it could reflect that uh, there are lower vaccination rates. All right, so now I will give a little bit of the hospitalization information, and then I will ask uh, Dr. Weisshart to uh, speak specifically about Frederick County's situation. So when we look at the CDC's forecast for hospitalizations as of 1227, you see their models go all over the uh, over the place, I guess you could say, but uh, the trend, with the exception of this one, they're all going up. Um, uh, although there is the one model that has things going down, but that seems to be the outlier. And this, where I am going here, is the one with uh, the greatest confidence, where there's the most uh, agreement with the models. And uh, I did want to show, because there's been some discussion in the emails that I've been able to read that people sent in about uh, hospitalization and hospitalization differences by vaccination status. So the CDC has a COVID net hospitalization surveillance system, and that surveillance system was in place from January to November with um, some hospital systems. So it's not every single hospitalization or hospital in the US. Uh, and the green here is the fully rate. This is the rate in fully vaccinated persons, which is uh, uh, well below 10%. And then this is the rate uh, per 100,000 in unvaccinated persons uh, who were hospitalized. Uh, so here is our uh, Frederick County data that represents Frederick Health Hospital, where you can see this was our peak last year uh, for the total number of uh, beds occupied by persons with COVID, the acute care beds, and the intensive care unit beds. And so you see our intensive care unit beds uh, do go up and down, but we've been uh, staying up for a while. And now I'd like to invite Dr. Weishar to uh, join us. I'll just show you all this slide, and then I'm going to stop the screen share so that all of you can see her when she's speaking. Uh, and so for those of you who want to access the data, you can go to frederickhealth.org forward slash COVID-19 to be able to see the status there. All right. Hopefully you can hear me. We can. Please go ahead. Thank you again for joining us. Well, thanks for the invitation. Um, I'm excited to share some information tonight with you all as you kind of make some decisions moving forward through the evening. Um, I wish the news was better. I'll say that up front. Uh, you know, yesterday we reached what we believe was an unfortunate milestone, having had 78 COVID patients in-house on the 29th. Um, that was greater than any time since this pandemic started. 
and we actually have 82 in-house this evening. So it, it is continuing to trend up. I think those models showing the increase are spot on. Um, about one third of our hospital census is COVID at this point. Uh, so we have 70% of the COVID patients are, uh, that are sick enough to be hospitalized or unvaccinated. We're seeing over 90% of our COVID ICU patients are unvaccinated. Um, and, and so that's the trend we, we have been seeing. Uh, you know, our clinical teams are stressed to the max, as you might imagine. And uh, just for some perspective, which you, you probably don't need, but I'll, I'll add it here is that, you know, we are working with a workforce that is two years almost into this. They are tired and they are not as numerous. Uh, so uh, we are in situations where, you know, nurses are, are taking more patients than uh, what they would have done previously. Uh, I think despite everyone's best efforts, they're not nearly as resilient. And um, so, you know, this situation is not the same as what we were encountering when this started. Um, and just personally speaking, I hoped we would be in a better position by this point, but alas, we are not. Um, so, you know, folks are frustrated, folks are angry. Uh, while I don't believe that this surge could have been completely prevented, um, I do think there's quite a bit that could have been done to mitigate this, including vaccinations and um, all the other mitigation strategies we know about. Um, from a testing perspective, uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise that the demand for testing has skyrocketed um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, testing is, is really the cornerstone of how we manage this. It's the public health service. Um, you know, we've done a lot of testing uh, through our testing tent, uh, but our, our, the demand for testing has exceeded the capacity for anyone to provide it at this point. Um, so you, you probably have heard about long lines at the testing tent. Uh, I know that our urgent cares and our EDs are being uh, overwhelmed by patients who don't physically need an evaluation, uh, but are just seeking to get a test. Uh, I think testing capacity at pharmacies and whatnot, just my personal observations, just even looking, are they all booked? There's, you know, very difficult to get at-home tests at this point. Uh, that may be somewhat better after the holidays. I don't know with people traveling and whatnot, folks have been trying to utilize this test. But um, that lack of testing has had a significant ripple effect. Uh, and as I mentioned, we're seeing um, just numerous, numerous folks showing up at the ED and showing up at the urgent care to be tested. And um, that is taking away resources from folks who truly have emergent conditions. Um, and it's really uh, clogging the system and bogging us down and, and limiting our ability to, to provide the resources to the folks that really, really need it. Um, and just for some perspective, we've had patients wait over 11 hours to be seen in our ER um, and, and then are treated and, and, and released at that point, uh, so it's it's a real issue and um, it's, it's a significant concern for us. Uh, it obviously, as I mentioned, impacts the care for those that are truly experiencing a health emergency. And I think that's one of my greatest concerns is that we you know, may not be able to treat that person 
who truly needs it because we're just so bogged down by all, all the other patients coming in. Um, so, you know, the question comes up is what can we do? How can you help? How can the community help? Um, I think every member of the community has an opportunity to help with this situation. Um, vaccination is still a cornerstone of what we should be doing and encouraging. And not only vaccination, but boosters when folks are eligible based on the criteria that have been presented. Um, washing hands, distancing, mask wearing, um, they are all part of the package we need to do to, to make this better. And I think also, you know, I've heard a lot of personal stories, and I know you guys as well, that folks are, they need to stay home and stay away from others when they don't feel well. There is quite a bit of asymptomatic spread, but nonetheless, you know, you do hear stories, sniffles, sore throat, they still got together with family for the holidays. Now the entire clan that got together all has COVID. Um, and um, it, it's been a big issue. We've been significantly impacted with our staff having more COVID this go around than prior go rounds as well. So um, what we would request is bold action to really help us help the community. So we need to protect our community, our families, friends, our neighbors. Like those are our folks that are working at the system. Those are our folks who are gonna need care that we can render through the system. And it's important that we uh, not only do our part, but also support our healthcare workers who are just really struggling um, to get through this. And so we're respectfully asking the Board of Health to reinstate the community-wide mask mandate, um, limit large gatherings, uh, 25 or less, 10 or less, you know, each person that you add to the gathering adds risk to spread. So I don't think there's necessarily a magical number, but I think a limit to the gathering certainly would be um, important. And then really uh, looking at how we can take action to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. Um, because we know that the unvaccinated are still driving a large portion of the utilization that we're seeing in the hospital. Um, so those are my comments that I had prepared. I'm happy to answer any questions if you guys have them. Thank you, Dr. Weissar. And since you're on the line and while it's fresh, I wouldn't mind uh, offering the opportunity for Board of Health members to ask her some questions. I do have some additional slides after this before we uh, conclude this section of the agenda, mm -hmm. uh, but I'd like to uh, invite you to ask questions that you have of Dr. Weissar right now. Councilmember McKay. Thank you, and thank you for the uh, the presentations uh, to both of the doctors. Um, with respect to FHH and capacity, have, um, have you begun to implement any strategies for increasing the number of ICU beds by converting other spaces, or are you is that not available to you at FHH, or have you already done it and this is the result in terms of capacity? Unlike our previous time, our issue now is we don't have staff to run the extra beds if we converted them. You know, so we have spaces we could convert, you know, and, and last time we had two ICUs running with a third that was sort of in the wings, if you will, prepared to open if needed. Um, this time we don't have the nurses to, to run it. Um, so that's, that's the rate limiting step this time, unfortunately. Yeah. And 
in terms of any of the initiatives from the governor in terms of augmenting hospital staff with like National Guard, I mean, I, I kind of think your your the expertise that are currently employed in hospital would double as National Guard. So maybe there's not a net gain, but is there any uh, you know staff augmentation uh, potential there? Yeah, I think there is. There has been some information that we've been feeding into the Maryland Hospital Association that goes back to the Maryland Department of Health and National Guard Resources were part of that discussion. Um, I, I think that uh, if we could debulk some of what we're seeing at the hospital, even for testing, so if they were to stand up a site just to do testing, um, that would be hugely beneficial, even if we didn't even get additional net nursing staff or clinical staff at the hospital. I mean, we would welcome that as well, but I think the impact could be dramatic even if they popped up a testing site at the Walmart parking lot, for instance. You know? yeah. yeah. And I guess, are we aware of any specific plans for that from the state level? Uh, I haven't gotten any any details back yet. So I don't I don't know if, if any of you all have gotten anything, but. Yeah, so I'd say that my understanding is that the state is looking to augment local efforts, that they uh, have a specific operations team that's looking at it, and that they are uh, looking to make testing resources available at, a, uh, at uh, some number of sites geographically distributed throughout the state. Um, but if Dr. Weissar and I have not heard about it, then it doesn't sound like Frederick is likely going to be one of those locations of super high need, because as uh, it's been explained to um, my testing team, um, what they've heard from the state is, we're the only jurisdiction where we've got testing seven days a week going into the evenings, because the health department clinic, we're open seven days a week and we've got the evening hours and the hospital, that's huge. So besides Meredith's, Frederick Health Hospital is the second highest volume, at least the last time the data was available, but Frederick Health Hospital's contribution to testing has been significant and it's the second highest hospital volume of testing, again, when I last was able to see data back in December. Uh, uh, so we're very fortunate. We have more testing resources than what other jurisdictions do, and that the hospitals is a drive-through, which is a great option for people. And then for those who have been able to get appointments at some of the other pharmacies, some of those are also drive-through options. I do have a slide later uh, on, but since we're talking about testing, I'll mention it now. So at the health department, so our location at Hillcrest, in the past, I think our peak was maybe 150 in a day's time. Well, now we're consistently uh, with five staff doing over 300 tests uh, a day consistently now. And uh, it means that uh, while we say our hours end at six, we're actually still serving people up until eight o'clock or later uh, because they had been in line. Um, with the county executive support, we are going to expand our Hillcrest location to be able to double our capacity, and we anticipate being able to get all of that in place uh, by the end of next week, so we'll be able to have double that capacity. So instead of 300 a day or more, uh, we'll be able to do 600, But and that's just at Hillcrest. We have our outline pop-up locations, for an example, at Lucas Village and at Emmitsburg yesterday or two days ago, 
we did 80, we tested 84 people at those locations. So in three hours, we had two staff who were just excellent and they were able to uh, test 84 persons at both those locations. So we're committed to continuing to go out to those outlying areas. Uh, and so when you add all that together, then it's about 400 a day that we're doing right now. So we are looking to uh, double that. And so I appreciate the county's executive support for that because our state funding uh, uh, for laboratory uh, testing it's not sufficient at this point to be able to do this robust effort which again the state thanks us because it is uh, uh, not the norm for the local health departments to be doing this and to have that investment and commitment seven days a week up into the evening hours um, on the executive gardener I see you've got your hand raised uh, yes thank you dr. Brookmeyer I do have to say that you know like uh, the comment uh, made from the hospital is these folks at the health department have been working like this at this pace for two years or almost two years and I appreciate that they are still standing and still doing what they can so I will tell you that you know DPW went out and uh, got a lease on space adjacent to our location at Hillcrest so that we could expand into it today people went in there to try to clean it we hope to get it open next week. We're going to have to hire contract employees. We do the health department is suffering from some of their employees being out with COVID. And so um, there is a capacity that limitation that is human. Okay. And I, it's the same thing that's happening in the hospital. The hospital has furniture. They have beds. They don't have staff to staff the beds. We can lease space. I can agree to spend money as much money as we, you know, to do testing to try to meet that demand. But we need people. So we're going to find contract people who will help us do that because we don't have enough people. So um, we are working on this. And so my hat is off to Dr. Bookmeyer and her team, but also to DPW and to um, our real estate people and to our cleaning staff and to uh, many other people in county government who are trying to flip an expansion to double our capacity within a matter of days. So um, I, I just really want to acknowledge Dr. Brookmeyer and her team, but also to have you recognize other county staff. And at some point, I will have a discussion with you about the impact of COVID on our internal operations, which is also significant because we have other people in other departments who are out with a certain number of people quarantining. So that human action is, um, is, interest, is, is a challenge. We have had National Guard come out and do some of our pop-up locations, which has been helpful. Um, I will tell you, effective at 5 p.m. today, I did declare a state of emergency in Frederick County for reasons of public health. And I've done that so that we can actually request additional resources. It does um, put in place our emergency plan, and I really want to be able to make requests for uh, additional assistance or even for additional funding that we may qualify for. So um, I think it's important for you to know that we have well done that as of today. It doesn't really change our day-to-day -day operations within county government to any degree. So I do appreciate um, Dr. Weishauer participating this evening and making it very clear that the hospital supports us reinstating a countywide mask mandate or a mask requirement as well as uh, other limitations that we can have to support the hospital. But I do think vaccination is most important, and I do think people need to go out, and we're still operating a vaccination clinic as you know, our pharmacies and physicians, 
and we really need to get people to get vaccinated and boosted. Yes, thank you. Without a doubt, the Department of Public Works folks were awesome in just making all this happen for us. They're just awesome. They're great partners. I do want to say regarding the Maryland National Guard, so we have uh, for some time, I guess at least a month, benefited from the Maryland National Guard providing uh, or and actually running the vaccination clinics at Brunswick, Thurmont, and Emmitsburg. And uh, we just got notice this week that they are all being deployed to assist the state with testing. So uh, for those of you who are in Brunswick, Thurmont, and Emmitsburg, we are going to find a way so that you can keep uh, the vaccination clinics going at your location. And we also hold the testing clinics at that location. So we are committed to doing that too. Somehow with our staff, we'll be able to do that. And tonight's report, so I think uh, was tonight Brunswick, 90 people tested in two hours. So we have a team that they're very efficient uh, and uh, really appreciate their efforts. So in addition to the Maryland National Guard that has run our outline clinics, we have also vaccination clinics. We have also tapped into the state's equity task force um, uh, vaccination clinics, the Maryland GoVax and they have uh, operated clinics for youth five to 11 uh, at our Oak Street location on Mondays and Tuesdays, the couple weeks before uh, winter break for students. And we are inviting them back to assist with some other special clinics. And then we have also uh, made requests and have benefited sometimes more or less from the state making some staff available that day. I mean, we make the requests in advance, but then they let us know if they can fulfill any of the requests that day. So we've used some of those uh, additional staff to augment our clinics at FCPS. Um, so we have already been accessing the staff resources that are available through the state for vaccination. And now that the state's interest has moved to testing, uh, we um, look forward to being able to access any resources that might be available. But as you know, throughout Maryland, they're all experiencing the same. And they kind of, and could be that they view us as having relatively good testing access compared to other locations. Our, our success sometimes is one of the things that makes it difficult for us to benefit from some of those extra resources. Okay, but anyway, but so this is back to Dr. Uh, the questions related to the hospital, and I see Councilmember Dacey, you have your hand up you'd like to ask. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think the hospital has been terrific throughout this whole thing. I should preface my statement by saying they've been a great partner and certainly a community asset to, you know, to Frederick County, everyone here. I do have several questions. Um, I guess starting with, I just want to put the idea out there first uh, for everyone. Something that the Board of Health, that we could do as the Board of Health tonight is request um, a state testing site. I see the governor announced Baltimore City, Hartford County, and Anne Arundel County each having a state-run testing site. What I heard just from right now from the hospital is that that would, you know, having a state-run site would take the pressure off. Um, to allow some staff to return perhaps and assist at the hospital. So I think we can make a compelling argument. And if we tonight voted to send a letter to uh, the governor asking for a test site in Frederick, I think that would go a long way. And I 
hope that we can um, add that to potential action items tonight. But uh, as far as questions for the hospital, um, I, I understand the staffing is an issue. I am curious, um, how much staff have you lost? I mean, there has been national stories about people that you know, do not want to get tested or can't get tested for whatever reason and are therefore leaving the healthcare profession because of the mandates. Is that something that Frederick Health Hospital has experienced? Uh, we, we lost very few people over the vaccine mandate. We have seen much more migration out as um, some nurses and, well, as some clinical staff, I should preface it that way, are burnt out and they have left healthcare altogether. Others have taken early retirement. Others have left to go pursue more lucrative travel agency jobs uh, where they can probably make three or four times, sometimes more than uh, their typical pay. Uh, we are utilizing agency staff at the hospital. I mean, what we've seen is folks typically in the past, if you took a travel job, you traveled, right? So you might live in Frederick, but you're traveling out of state someplace. What we've seen is folks can now take a travel assignment and sleep in their own bed at night because everybody is, so they're, you know, they're leaving Meredith and they're coming and being a travel nurse at our facility, vice versa. We're, we're stealing staff from our, our partner hospitals is, is what it's ending up being. Um, so really, I don't, I, there were probably a few that separated from the vaccine mandate, but I don't believe our current staffing crisis is due to the fact that we require vaccines and, and boosters, actually, we are requiring those as well. Gotcha. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you have it tonight, but I, at some point I'd appreciate the numbers, you know, just seeing the numbers of staff and how that's changed over time. I mean, I know the economics of the whole profession is changing where, you know, people can demand higher pay, nurses can demand higher pay and, and actually um, get that. Are you raising nurse pay at all? Yes, we have. We have actually spent several millions of dollars in uh, I don't have the exact figure, but millions of dollars invested in salaries. And I will tell you that on a monthly basis that we continue to invest significantly um, in premium labor, you know, and that's, that's, that's agency staff, but it's not just agency nursing staff. We're seeing shortages in pharmacy. We're seeing shortages in respiratory therapy. Um, and, you know, while we do use a contracted service for our, like our ICU doctors and our hospitalist doctors, they are also experiencing absenteeism due to COVID and are also trying to tap into premium labor, um, temporary staff to help kind of fill some of the holes and to address the surge of patients as they come. I see. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, 82 beds that are being used for COVID. My question of that is how many of those are due to COVID? Because, you know, you do get, I'm sure there's a lot of mothers, for example, on the birthing unit that have that test positive have no COVID symptoms and don't have to be treated for COVID. You know offhand how many of the 82 are um, symptomatic or there because of COVID? I'm told 60% are in with a primary diagnosis of COVID. Gotcha. So that's roughly what, about 50? That's, that's 60% 60 of persons who have a diagnosis of COVID, you're saying? Yes, because we're, we're testing everybody that comes in for bed placement reasons but 60% of them are there because of COVID symptoms. The others are there for something else and either are incidentally diagnosed or, hey, I happen to have some sniffles too kind of thing. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, so for everybody else, that's the common terms that are being used to distinguish that. I think it might be the UK that is now reporting out that separately, which is for COVID versus with COVID. So that's right. maybe the terminology that will be more commonly used as time goes on. Right. Uh, and then if for the intensive care unit, similarly, the for COVID with COVID. Do you have an idea of how many COVID was identified, but not necessarily contributing to their ICU stay? Is it maybe 100% or probably COVID? Yeah, I mean, I, I think of the ones that are in there that are COVID positive, they're, they're having respiratory failure. So I have to believe it's related to their COVID. Um, I don't have the exact statistic, but that, that's my assumption for that population. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know what it would take going forward, but I think that would be helpful information going forward for the public to have. But um, my final question, I appreciate your indulgence here. Um, my, my final question is just about the monoclonal antibody treatment. I understand it was um, suspended from Frederick Health Hospital, and I just appreciate understanding, you know, what the time frame is for getting it back and why it was suspended and what we can do to try and get it back, because I think it is an important uh, countermeasure. Well, hot off the presses today, I've heard that we will be receiving allocation once again. Um, it was suspended by the state because the belief was that the uh, percent of Omicron variant was quite high and there's only one monoclonal that was active against that and we had not received allocation of that monoclonal. Um, but I was told earlier today by our pharmacy that we will be receiving monoclonal antibodies again and it will restart. I don't have an exact date um, right now, but I would expect it would be relatively quickly because, you know, we really haven't stood down that operation. You know, we were we just weren't getting the supply. So I'm hopeful that that will be up and running sometime soon. Um, it does remain a little, little tricky. I'm not sure if we're receiving the... Um, monoclonal that has activity against Omicron. So, but we know that there's a mixture of Omicron and Delta and other stuff floating around. So uh, we expect that, that some patients should still have significant benefit. Thank you for that. That's all my questions for you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll add to that. Uh, it's, it's one of my slides later, so I'll skip over it when we get to that. But on December 22nd, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services indicated that two of the commonly administered uh, ones that they thought were not going to be as effective against the Omicron variant. Uh, and then in response, then the Maryland Department of Health uh, directed providers to stop administering um, those two products. So uh, the hospital's actions here were in response to the Maryland Department of Health directing them to stop utilizing those two products and they were the ones that you had. So hence the pause in that. So glad to hear that update though, sounding like we will get uh, more in the future. And I see Councilmember McKay, I see you have your hand up, but uh, Council uh, President Keegan Ayer, you had yours up uh, also before that. And since you spoke already, Councilmember McKay, I'll take you after uh, uh, Council President Keegan Ayer, please go ahead. I, I Two quick questions. Um, I know one of the things that people have been concerned about, um, we've talked extensively about the number of COVID patients in the hospital mm -hmm. and how that's impacting um, staffing. Um, can you just discuss um, for us as well as the public um, the non-COVID related health needs that 
could suffer or that are suffering because of the attention and care that is required by the health, the, the, the attention and care that is required for the COVID patients and why people in the community, even if they're 100% vaccinated, boosted, and all the rest of it, why they should be concerned as our numbers in the hospital continue to go up and what this means for potential health needs that they or their loved ones might have. Sure. Yeah, I, I will. I will try to tackle that. I mean, I think the um, the first thing I would think about is our ability to process patients through the emergency department, right? So somebody showing up with chest pain, you know, bleeding, trauma from an automobile accident, and those sorts of things, um, they are likely being delayed under some circumstances, um, especially if our um, ED is full. Uh, and when we have full hospital beds, we cannot move patients from the ED up to the main hospital to make more beds in the emergency department to process more patients. So it really kind of gums up the whole system, uh, if you will. Uh, the other, I think, impact that some may have already seen is that we have canceled, canceled or, you know, tried to uh, reduce the number of surgeries that need beds. Um, and so that is an impact that's already happening. We've been assessing surgical patients daily uh, to make sure that we feel like we can safely do the procedure and provide the care after the procedure that is important. And um, so there has been a reduction in the number of surgeries that are taking place. We're, we're trying to do our best to triage the urgent and obviously the emergent cases get done, um, but more elective things, maybe a back surgery or a joint surgery could be delayed um, with this. So I think those are probably the most tangible things. I will say that, um, and again, in comparison to the first time, you know, I, I call it the first time we went through this, but sort of back in 2020 when this started, what we saw is the, the non-COVID patients tended not to come to the hospital, right? So our hospital census was actually low at that time. Uh, and what we've seen this time is that hasn't happened. And um, the other non-COVID folks that have come are actually quite ill. And so that also strains the system um, because they're requiring more resources and they, they we, we call it acuity, right? That the level of sickness is quite high. Um, and so that is also a stress to the system. Does that answer your question? It does, absolutely it does. I had one more question, then it went back to the discussion of testing, um, and it can be for you or Dr. Brookmeyer. Um, I know that at one point we were saying if you, if you had been exposed to someone who tested positive, you should go get tested, and now I believe that has changed, whereas if you are fully vaccinated and boosted, you should only go and try take up a space in a line to get tested if you were actually experiencing symptoms. Is that correct or is it not correct? And perhaps it's something that if you get that information out to the public, it might slightly reduce the number of people standing in line for testing, but might not. I don't know, Dr. Yes. Brookmeyer, do you want to take that one or you want me to take yes. a stab with that? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start. So um, we've I think what you're referring to and what you might have seen is the media statement from the CDC 
uh, regarding uh, isolation and quarantine for the general population. So I'll say for those who haven't been paying so close attention on December 23rd, the CDC came out with recommendations specifically for healthcare personnel and specifically in thinking about situations where staffing, where there might be some uh, staffing challenges as well. But so that for healthcare workers, there was new guidance that came out December 23rd. Now for the general population, uh, December 22nd, I think the CDC issued a media statement and said, oh, here are the changes if you've been exposed to somebody uh, who might have COVID and you don't have the symptoms yet. Um, what's a little challenging with that is it came out as a media statement, which hasn't been the usual process. So usually it comes out with more, uh, it comes out where you have the information that supports that and it's more complete in talking about the many scenarios. So is it somebody who's immunocompromised, for example? So while I read that media statement, my expectation is that for persons whose immune systems don't work well, that, you know, for them, where they're at high risk for complications, maybe that general population recommendation isn't going to apply to them. I mean, I, I'm not sure. So I think it's not ready for prime time yet. Uh, and what I'm saying for, you know, even for looking how that might apply to uh, businesses, you know, I'd say at this point, it's a case-by-case -case uh, situation, especially if somebody, if a business is experiencing extreme staffing, but there uh, hasn't been complete information provided yet by the CDC for me to feel confident in understanding sort of what are the guardrails with that recommendation. So the research population that it was based on and the circumstances. Also, my understanding is that it was predicated on uh, Omicron being not only predominant, but it was based on Omicron's shortened incubation period. So that's the time from exposure to the time you develop symptoms and the time that you could be spreading it to others, that it's predicated on Omicron appearing to have a shorter incubation period, and then also a shorter transmission period. But if it's all predicated on Omicron, which that's a great thing, that's a good reason for there to be a change. But what we have from the surveillance data uh, nationwide, I showed that one slide where it was just about 58% for the week ending 1225, and uh, that was with modeling. And then the real world data in Maryland that was verbally reported to me was that we were just about at 58% with the samples that were collected you know, two weeks ago. So I think the situation that that guidance speaks to or the assumptions, which is Omicron is that's all that's circulating, not any of the Delta residual. I think we're not in that situation yet. Uh, so it makes me even more hesitant to say, oh, let's apply this new one where the assumption is that it's a shorter incubation period and a shorter transmission period. So that's my long answer to that. So I think it's not ready for prime time yet. And when the information, uh, when we, when it's more clear which situations it applies to, when it doesn't, and whether all the assumptions have been met, then we will be uh, publicizing that. Great. That, that, that does help clear it up a little bit for those people that had read the same report that I had read and were thinking, okay, well, I've been exposed, but I'm okay. I don't have to go get tested. I'm like, I don't know that that's what it was saying. So, okay. Thanks. Yeah, although um, with the testing lines, it, 
for people who want to get tested for a gee whiz, I'd like to know, but I didn't potentially expose anybody and I don't potentially need to be around other people, maybe for persons in that situation. And if they don't have uh, 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 any, well, for sure, if, if people, if it's people who have, are concerned that they've been exposed, but they don't have symptoms, that's one story. But if people have symptoms, then the recommendation still is uh, to get tested. If you're fully vaccinated and you don't have symptoms, the recommendation after exposure is to get tested on day five or seven, because we are seeing a lot of people who are coming too early to be tested, coming too early for Delta and coming too early for Omicron. And then that just results in them coming back when it is the time period that it'd be more likely to have the test actually detect the virus. So uh, for individuals, if you hear that you had close and prolonged contact with someone uh, and you don't have symptoms, then we are asking that you wait till day five. So that's um, the day of your last exposure to that person counts as day zero, then count five days after that. And that's when we'd recommend you get tested because the incubation period at that point, the test should be more than likely to pick up the virus. Now, I do have to say also with Omicron, we're still waiting to see how good the antigen tests are performing. And those are those at-home tests. The majority of them are antigens. Uh, but at this point, they're still part of the uh, allowable tests for uh, many purposes, uh, but not uh, all businesses, schools, and others accept those at-home, over-the-counter um, uh, tests, including daycares. So um, we are getting a lot of people coming in from daycares because they're still open and they want to get tested that day. So it's really important that people understand that there's an incubation period. So uh, uh, you need to uh, come for testing at a time period where the infection, if you have become infected, so exposed, become infected, you need enough days to have gone by for the test to actually detect it. So we are asking people wait five to seven days after exposure if they don't have symptoms. If you do have symptoms, then the tests are more reliable. And especially the PCR tests, they're the ones that get sent away to a lab for processing. Um, they're very good at detecting the virus when it's there. Thank Thanks. You. All right, thank you. Council Member McKay. Thank you, just a couple of questions. So for FHH, um, it, and we talked about this, I think, at our last meeting or the meeting before, but I think it was the last. Um, it seemed that in the month or two prior to the surge, say, you know, October, November timeframe, that the uh, process for getting tested at your site uh, had changed. And, and I know, at least in my household, it created some confusion in terms of, you know, do I need an appointment? I can't just, I can't just drive up anymore. And, and it, it seemed, you know, it, it kind of, uh, put a, a, a bit of confusion into the, into the population in terms of how how exactly do I go there to get tested anymore, given that's not the prior procedure. Um, and, and I understand that that was a procedural change that was linked to a cessation or a change in kind of the government, you know, policies that you know probably was I think back in August and just took a bit of time to implement locally. Are we still in that place right now, or? Have you been able to revert back 
to the prior, I mean, you're maxed out as it is, but um, are, what is the current procedure? Is it more like it was before, or is it still you need a doctor's order or some kind of appointment before showing up? So it, it, we made a decision to take on some risk and revert it back. Um, okay. You know, we haven't necessarily shared that widely, uh, that we believed it was the right thing to do in the sense of what we're experiencing. Um, you know, I, I will say that personally, though, I, I personally went through the tent on December the 18th, so I'll use my experience. Um, if that was in place was that you either needed to come with an, an order from your doctor or from your provider, or there is a process by which you could get an order by calling on the phone, and we were, we're using um, a service to do that. Um, and so my experience was that I was able to get the order, and that was not the rate-limiting step for me getting through the line. I was on the phone for a while to get that order, so I'm not, sh you know, I'd like to think it's speeding things up, but I'm not sure in the end. You know, I, I think it's probably just get bottlenecks because we have two swabbing stations, and it's just, you know, you have to get the samples. There's so much that happens behind the scenes there to be able to move people through quickly. Um, but at this point, yes, we did suspend that. Um, but because of the the change in the in the states, I I believe it was there. Um, public health emergency declaration that was discontinued is what prompted us to have to make that that change. So uh, we, we probably may be out of compliance a little bit with that. But again, given the circumstances, uh, we decided that was the right thing to do. Well, I certainly appreciate that change. And I think as I, you know, after looking at the language at the time, I think it was it was more about, you know, confusion and hesitancy rather than a, a, a real major implement. I mean, impediment to getting tested. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's how I, you know, reacted to it once I was able to digest the information at the time. Um, I, I wanted to go back I, I just to the, um, the discussion about the CDC's updated guidance on isolation time periods, 10 days to five days. I had thought it was initially, and I think this is the way you described it, Dr. Brickmeyer, that it was initially, you know, uh, put out there for healthcare professionals. Has it not been now, you know, um, recommended more broadly to the population? Because I know my agency has now adopted it, you know, you know, in terms of where I where I work. So could you just? I I, I didn't quite get that from your when you went through those, you know, what happened on the twenty third and the twenty second. Could you just? Oh. Yes, thank you. So December 23rd was the healthcare professionals, and I am uh, time challenged or date challenged. The I was thinking it was the 22nd. It was just this week that the media statement came out. Maybe it was the 27th. I don't have it up in front of me. But so one was for the healthcare professionals. That was December 23rd. And then the one for the general population was the one that came out this week. I just okay. thought I still had another week before the end of the year, and instead it was the 27th, and today's the 30th. So, uh, so the new recommendation is five days from onset of symptoms? Uh, yeah, so it's shortening it from the 10 to 5, but there's still, it is also expecting that people can wear face coverings, and it's for the general right. population. So people who are listening who are thinking, does this apply to schools? Does it apply to child cares? Does it apply to congregate settings, uh, nursing homes, 
detention centers, all of that. I, I don't have enough information to know whether the, those special settings where the potential for somebody to be returning early, so I describe it early, uh, if it's a greater risk of exposure to more people, then those settings might get us some special circumstances and not be eligible, uh, even if people are wearing face coverings. So I, I think it's just a little too early to know, but for the general population and the general office population, uh, what did come out this week in that media statement, um, we're st again still waiting to get additional information because it says general population. So that's general population in terms of, uh, I think, general risk exposure uh, themselves and then general risk exposure for uh, their exposing other people. So that wouldn't be people who have immune compromised conditions and wouldn't be people who work with people who are at a great risk for having complications in, say, a congregate setting, but still waiting to see. So I apologize for that confusion there. I uh, didn't have that uh, up for all of you to be able to see. Uh, yes, Councilmember Fitzwater. Thank you for all the information so far. Um, it's been very comprehensive and I just really appreciate um, Dr. Weisher you being here on behalf of Frederick Health. So I'm gonna hold any questions for Dr. Brookmeyer because I know you have a few more things to present, but one question for FHH. Um, you've talked a little bit about this already, the state, the emergency funding that Governor Hogan announced that's supposed to go towards hospital and nursing home staffing and you talked about uh, the National Guard involvement and the idea of additional testing site and then briefly talked about what the hospital's needs would be or what you'll be looking for in that. So I'm, I just wanted to just expand on that a little bit and ask you, um, you know, do you, do, do you all know yet how much of that is coming to you and what that looks like? Have you been able to make specific requests based on this, the, in, you know, the needs of FHH or is it still kind of just the idea out there, but nothing really specific in terms of the supports you're going to be receiving yet. It's my understanding that we don't have any specific information. Yeah, yeah. I think it's out there, but we're not sure what it's gonna look like. Okay, thank you. Sure. All right, any other, oh, uh, Council Member Dacey? Yeah. Thank you. Just uh, had another question related to, um, you know, the graph that shows the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated that are um, in the hospital. How are we are we classifying those uh, partially vaccinated in the unvaccinated category? Like those that have gotten two shots or those that have gotten one? And I guess are the fully vaccinated only counted if you have a booster? I'm just curious how we're. I believe our definition is a fully vaccinated mirrors the definition the CDC uses, which is the two dose series um, or the one shot if you got J&J. We're not counting boosters as being fully vaccinated. I mean, obviously, yeah, not yet. They changed the definition, but the definition we're using is, you know, receive the initial series. Okay. Um, on, the, on the graph shown, I'm not completely sure, and I don't know if Dr. Brookmeyer could comment on that, but...
I, uh, at this time, it looks like the unvaccinated is completely unvaccinated and partially vaccinated aren't included in the numbers from uh, what I'm getting from the person who looks at our data. So um, the, um, we try to put on our information what is known about the data source. And so um, I will scroll to look at my notes page because I did include that knowing that those details make a difference. But I, uh, I don't have it for the hospital numbers. Oh, yeah, I guess I, I don't have the hospital vaccination data. Um, I had what I pulled from the FHH website. Um, okay. I don't have the data details on that. Sure. All right. Uh, County Executive Gardner. Thank you, Dr. Brookmeyer. I have a couple of questions, additional questions for the hospital that you may or may not be able to answer. This is a question I ask from time to time about uh, pediatric admissions. And, you know, we have not seen a lot of pediatric uh, patients with COVID uh, historically, but uh, certainly it's in the news that with Omicron, we're seeing more pediatric patients. Now, I know we don't have a pediatric ICU, but you can comment on if we're seeing more pediatric hospitalizations, um, that would be of interest to me. Um, the second question I have is related to transfers. Um, I know the hospital transfers people to other hospitals regularly because they can maybe get a, some kind of service that we don't have uh, or for other reasons. Um, but um, if the ICU becomes full um, or that ultimately the hospital becomes full, do you have, what is the state plan for where those patients will go? I mean, I've heard that there are these state locations, Laurel being one in particular, where there could be a, um, where hospitals could send patients that they were unable to care for. And then my third question, I'm sorry, I have three questions because uh, they're all kind of different. Taking it, notes, so go ahead. <laughs> the first one was pediatrics. The second one was related to where will patients go if the ICU is full, which seems like the first thing that would be full because that's where your limitation is most. And then the last question is, um, you know, we have people say, well, I'm not going to get vaccinated because I know the people in the hospital that are sick or in the ICU are vaccinated. And, you know, I, I know the devil is in the detail and that some of the people who get seriously ill anecdotally, I don't have any statistics on it, are people who are immunocompromised. They've in some kind of cancer treatment or they've had an organ transplant or some other circumstance. And I don't know if there's any statistics on that or not, but um, those folks, uh, it's my understanding that people who are immunocompromised, you know, don't have, the, those vaccines just don't work as well for them. And it seems people use that as an excuse for not getting vaccinated. And I'd really like to put a pin in that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with your first one from a pediatric perspective. We have not seen a significant uptick in pediatric inpatient admissions. Um, so... That's what we've seen there. From a transfer perspective, uh, so that the state has set up previously something they called the Critical Care Coordinating Center, C4 is what we call it for short. And that is um, a service that gives us the visibility to see ICU beds available statewide. So the, the idea is you call C4 
they tell you there's an ICU bed at Meritus, then our providers call Meritus to see if they can facilitate that transfer. So that actually has been incredibly helpful. And actually one of my colleagues today suggested that I suggest to the state and I actually reached out to the MHA to see if they could almost set up the same sort of service for med surge beds. Because, you know, one of the things that's incredibly inefficient is calling around to multiple facilities to then be told after you've given some information, but we don't have any beds. And that is the answer that's more common than not these days, because, you know, we're not experiencing something unique in Frederick necessarily. Um, so that's what we've been seeing with, with transfers. I will say just in general, um, you know, I've seen, I've been at Frederick since 2008 and I'm a hospitalist by training. So, you know, my personal experience has been over the years that transferring patients has become increasingly more difficult. And I think in part, perhaps some way because of the payment system for the hospitals, you know, it, you know, folks aren't incentivized to have a lot of extra beds sitting around. Um, but I think that may have also put us into a little bit of a more difficult situation for this pandemic, honestly. So it's, it's a topic well beyond the scope of tonight's discussion, but um, it is something that, that we've just seen historically. And now with the pandemic transferring is, is very challenging and, um, you know, for the most part, we've decided we need to try to solve our own issues. So it will not be, it's not unusual at all to have ICU patients boarding in the emergency department. It's not what we like to do. So that means they're getting ICU care down in the emergency room. But again, that's a situation where that individual patient um, is taking up space that, you know, that is not allowing us to bring somebody into the emergency department. And it's also challenging for the staff because the resources that that ICU patient needs are different than what we would tr traditionally do in the emergency department. So um, it's challenging for a variety of reasons. Okay. Um, and then your third question, can you remind me what that was? I didn't take notes on it. Uh, I'm sorry, the third question was... <laughs> I started to write it down and then I was listening, but now I've, I've forgotten what it was, so. Uh, obviously there, well, for the surges and the hospitalizations are primarily people who are unvaccinated. There are some people who are vaccinated in the hospital. And I know the devil's in the detail that some of those who are getting ill enough to need hospitalization or ICU care are people who are immunocompromised. But I have not seen any statistic on that. So I didn't know if you could comment on that because um, people who are unvaccinated will say, well, there's vaccinated people going to the hospital. And, and while that's true, I think yeah. a lot of that is associated with people who have other health issues. Yeah, no, and, and I can't provide statistic necessarily, but that, that is consistent with what, what we've seen. Um, what, what we know is that I've, even though the vaccinated individual that has gotten a booster can get infected, in general, they are not getting severe illness. Um, and, and even those that may not have taken up the vaccine that well, they may be in the hospital, but we believe that their illness is less severe than if they were unvaccinated altogether. Um, it is fairly consistent that the unvaccinated tend to have the most severe disease um, and are the ones that unfortunately end up in our intensive care unit for days on end um, and may or may not survive. So that's, that's what we have continued to see. And I think sometimes it gets, you know, when we quote data like 70% are uh, unvaccinated, 
you know, the, the folks that you reference in your comment the, are, are commenting, well, 30% of them are still in the hospital and they got vaccinated, right? And, but it, it, it's skewed because of all the folks that we have vaccinated. And I think the graph that Dr. Brookmeyer put up really is more illustrative of what the, you know, the situation is with the upward curve of, of um, the hospitalizations of the unvaccinated versus the very low rate of, of the vaccinated. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. So um, sounds like the bottom line is the hospital, both the staff and the capacity is uh, extremely stretched and there's the contribution of persons who are positive with COVID, both there for COVID, but they also uh, happen to have it. But regardless, the hospital is at its point where there are transfers and persons boarding in the emergency department um, longer than you would otherwise want to have happen. And that the situation, while you might have physically the same number of beds as last year, uh, that it's an issue of staffing and the, the healthcare workers have many options throughout the country and uh, including right here in their own backyard that you mentioned, uh, where they can make three, four times what they had been making and be able to sleep in their own bed at night uh, by being a traveler to a local other location. And at the health department, we have and are continuing to employ some of the uh, staffing agency uh, nurses. So I apologize for our contribution to all of that. Um, so I'd, oh, uh, council member Fitzwater and McKay. Councilmember Fitzwater first. Very quickly, but just um, because you just brought it back up again, Dr. Brookmeyer, with the uh, bringing back, I guess, the question that Councilmember Dacey asked earlier about the number of patients that are, you know, there with the primary diagnosis of COVID or because of the COVID symptoms versus those that test positive once they're there. I would just assume, and you can just uh, clarify for this for us, Dr. Weishar, that regardless of the answer to that, there are still additional stresses on the staff that have to take place no matter what, if they came with that, those symptoms or not, because it requires isolation, it requires, you know, a di different kind of course of action because they're positive, um, even if that is not maybe the reason or what they didn't know that when they came in or that wasn't the primary reason that they came in. Is that an accurate assumption? Yeah, that, that's a very accurate assumption. I, isolation is hard on the patients and hard on the staff, right? And so even if they're in for congestive heart failure, but they test positive for COVID, they end up being isolated. And you can only imagine how many times a typical uh, patient gets visits throughout the day from dietary and the phlebotomists and nurses and CNAs and rehab and the doctors, I mean, the list goes on and on. And each time, like, they're having to put um, PPE on, take it off, it takes extra time. Um, and, and we do actually try to group care a little bit as well to make it more efficient. Um, but it's it's also stressful on the patients because then they are bound to their rooms. It's, it also can lead to other things like if they can't be active, it makes them more weak and, um, and can cause other problems as well. So it's a completely accurate statement what you said. And it's not prime flu hospitalization season yet. Correct. Okay, uh, Councilmember McKay, then Councilmember Higgins. 
Yeah, just a quick follow-up on the uh, the concept of the traveling uh, nurses. I mean, we talked about it previously as a drag or a draw upon FHH staff. Um, do you have access to, you know, resources from the state or the county to be to basically attract that type of uh, staffing back into um, FHH from other jurisdictions? I mean, it's I know it's a you know you you're crying, you mentioned the board of health or the the health department is utilizing that, um, but what's the I mean net net where are you on that? I mean if they, I know I understand they would they would be more expensive staff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we uh, we have done everything we have to do, including paying what I consider to be the hideous rates um, to get staff. So we are, we are hostage to that. I won't lie. I mean, um, but you know, we are utilizing significant agency to just make sure we can try to fulfill the needs of the patients. Uh, so I, I do think there's going to need to be some discussion at the state and federal levels on how to support hospitals through this, um, because obviously there's significant outlay of expense and um, it's unbudgeted, right? You know, I mean it's. Something that is is just very challenging right now. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. And I, yeah, it's wouldn't want to be in your shoes, but thank you for filling up. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Councilmember Hagan. Uh, thank you. I I know that you already you know sort of made reference to it. I just think it bears repeating or explicating a little further for people who seem to get confused about it or at least use it out of lazy thinking or whatever. But when we say, for example, and I know the numbers vary in different directions, but that 70% of the people in the hospital are unvaccinated and 30% aren't, um, and you did refer to this, that is still many times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated because that's out of a smaller uh, and generally even less vulnerable population, right? I mean, the, you know, because look at the percentage of elderly people who've been vaccinated and things like that. So you are many times more likely to end up uh, in the hospital if you're unvaccinated. And it's not it's not like 70 to 30 is the comparison of an equal universe. It's not even close. Um, and, and then there's the leap to the difference between being hospitalized with or because of COVID and being in the ICU or dying. And I'm sure that the, if you were to project the percentages, the odds out that way. I mean, I know we know this, we talk about it. It just seems like some people just, you know, don't get it. Well, you know, you can get it, you can get it if you're unvaccinated or everything. I just, so I just think it really bears repeating. I mean, the, the chance, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, of course, but the chance of you being in the ICU or dying, you know, in the hospital or elsewhere of, COVID if you're unvaccinated are far, far higher. Uh, I just, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but you know, it just, we point out that 70, 30 doesn't really reflect the numbers, but I don't know if people really get how much it doesn't reflect the odds and the, the numbers. No, I, I, I agree with you. Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, Barbara, what were you gonna no, say? That's okay, I, I have a slide on that later though. Oh, okay. And, and I know Dr. Culpepper has presented um, data during the noon uh, provider calls on Thursdays that he does uh, regarding 
the many, many times over somebody is likely to uh, be hospitalized and or die if they're unvaccinated. So to your point, um, I will say that consistently 90 plus percent of the COVID patients in our ICU are unvaccinated. Um, and there have been times where 100 percent of the ICU patients with COVID are unvaccinated. So I, I don't think it's much of a leap to say that you are much, much more likely to have significant complications and or deaths from COVID if you have not received any vaccinations. Um, and just in my conversations with our ICU medical director, the ones that do end up in the ICU that happen to be vaccinated are tend to have a short stay in the ICU. They're supported a little bit and then are able to recover and be moved back out of the ICU. Um, so that, that's been our experience. Thank you. Sure. I just thought it, it bears repeating to people because, you know, even 90 to 10 doesn't mean you're nine times more likely. It's more like 30 or 40 times more likely. But anyway, okay. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Weissar. So I'm going, um, I appreciate you being available for the questions. And since it's now 825, I'd like to thank you for being with us and give you permission, if you'd like, to be able to uh, move on to what else you had planned for the evening. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And, um, and I did take some notes on the additional data that was requested, and so we'll try to get that back to you guys, the turnover rates. And, um, and then moving forward, the for COVID versus with COVID numbers. Thank you, and you can provide that to me then, and I'll share it with the group. All right, sounds good. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And now for everybody else, I'm going to move back on to the presentation. Do you see uh, the one big screen? Uh, you just need yes. to present. Can you see the one big screen? No, no, you just you just went to your presentation. It's got the slides on the side. Yeah, you need to switch to full screen. I got out of that, so I'll go back. Well, Dr. Brookmeyer is trying to get that back up. I will note we have somebody who sent us an email saying that they um, the public comment link didn't work. So if somebody could check on that, um, I would appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, I added the CDC updates. So for those of you who are uh, listening and following along, so the media statement was December 27th. So this will be in the presentation that will be posted later on the website. But so, again, I believe that the recommendations for a shortened period for isolation and quarantine was based on Omicron exposure, which we can't, uh, ha I don't have uh, confidence right now that that is 100% of the experience of persons right now in Maryland or Frederick. Uh, but this is what uh, the uh, media statement was. And again, the CDC hasn't provided other information. But uh, it is if you test positive uh, for COVID-19, everyone, regardless of vaccination status, if you test positive, stay home for five days. And then if your symptoms are gone or they've largely resolved and you haven't had a fever for the 24 hours uh, before that fifth day, then you could end your isolation shorter 
at that five days. We're returning to folks uh, and out of isolation the sixth day, but uh, to continue to wear that mask around others for an additional five days. Uh, because the, the risk that you are still shedding virus is not zero, uh, but it does appear to be less than what it had been with the prior variants, at least uh, as far as I'm uh, reading into the media statement. Then the other part of the media statement is for people who've been exposed to someone with COVID-19, so then that would be the quarantine situation, and that's where uh, the recommendation is um, if you've been boosted or it's within six months of your completion of your primary series of the vaccine, then uh, you can uh, continue to stay around people uh, wear a mask for 10 days and test on day five if possible. Now, for folks, though, who were exposed to someone with COVID-19, but uh, they it's been more than six months since they completed their original vaccination series and they're not boosted, then the recommendation, though, is to stay home for five days and then after that, continue to wear a mask around others for an additional five days. Again, assuming that you don't have any symptoms that develop, because if symptoms develop, then you move into the isolation uh, think I for infection or illness and I for isolation, move into the isolation category. Now, they do have a provision of, um, that, and I think this is where it's going to be most relevant to workplaces, that uh, if you can't quarantine uh, or maybe in your household setting, you can't quarantine, then the recommendation is to wear a mask for 10 days and test on day five if possible. So I briefly want to say outbreaks in schools. So the state, despite schools being closed, has seen an increase in outbreaks in schools over the last week. Uh, I presented um, back in November that the nursing homes, we had hardly had any cases. Uh, so our case numbers have gone up even in the nursing homes. But unlike last year, uh, the deaths, fortunately, we have not seen the deaths go up. This is the slide that shows um, so if you're thinking, well, it looks like a bunch of blue dots. Well, right here at the last line are cases among fully vaccinated residents, and the blue are out of the fully vaccinated Maryland residents. So out of this number of people, blue plus yellow, they've been vaccinated. And only that small yellow line there represents the numbers of uh, cases among fully vaccinated residents. So that's to give you some perspective uh, and this is this is cases. This isn't even the hospitalizations. Uh, ooh, let's see. I did have something on that. So when we look at the risk of hospitalization, oh well, this is with the vaccination. Um, that uh, when they looked at uh, more recently at persons who are 65 and older uh, with that booster, how it reduces the risk of being hospitalized by 94 percent. And then here was another one of the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly reports where unvaccinated people with a previous infection were five times more likely to have a COVID, a positive COVID-19 test compared to vaccinated people. Uh, and I think that was it for that. So um, because the next agenda item is discussion of the proposed regulations and it has masks on it, I wanted to just briefly provide some information on masks. I know we've received a lot of information from people uh, about masks and if I were to do online research, uh, then you, know, you could go pages and pages and pages of various uh, studies. So uh, there are some where they're uh, 
uh, collated ones. So, uh, and in fact, I didn't add that one here, but the Cochrane reports would be one to go to. Uh, the CDC had a science brief, which is what I'm showing you here. And these are the sections on that science brief that's followed then by all the resources. Um, and that, uh, that experimental epidemiologic data support community masking to reduce the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, with those uh, alpha and delta variants that were part of study time, and that's among adults and children. Uh, the prevention benefit of masking is derived from the combination of source control, so that's the person who's ill, that's source control, and then also uh, for the wearers, for the other uh, person who's not ill, uh, for that person's benefit as well. And um, so there are, you know, what's been fascinating, as I have to say before all this, I have never read any fluid dynamics uh, or air dynamics uh, research studies. So there have been some really interesting ones. And I know some folks had written in about the FDA and the EPA. So I included that and I'll record the slides for you to be able to see that. I do have to say that the effectiveness of face coverings, and I would say masks, uh, because when you get in the face covering category, there are other um, factors that really impact the effectiveness. So when people are even wearing the face covering, the positioning of it, the fit of it, the respiratory force, so that's the speaking softly versus really projecting your voice, the mask material, the volume of virus uh, that is being expelled, the consistency of use. Now, because people, uh, uh, because it, it, most people, I would say, are not wearing a mask when they have exposure to everybody, including persons in their household. So mask use has not been 100% for people when they've been around others, especially in indoor spaces. But So I mentioned that, that effectiveness does vary by all those conditions. And then there are other conditions such as the humidity probably and some other things that affect the desiccation of the virus particles. So in terms of do masks uh, do anything to block some virus particles, so while we're waiting for the information and maybe some of it's more research, I thought I'd also share the real world experience that we had with influenza, at least it is a different virus, but to look at the virus transmission. So this is the influenza seasons. I would have provided the most recent data for this year's influenza season, but the state's data page is not yet up for this. So I can't, I wasn't able to pull that for you. Uh, so this goes back a little bit earlier, but to show um, uh, each year, so 2017, 2018's blue, and the most recent uh, flu season that ended, the 2020, 2021, is this red line here. This is the percent of uh, tests that are positive, and you see very few were positive, except for right around that May time period when it started to go up, and that's when the face coverings stopped being used. I mean, you can see this is quite unusual. When we have three other years of comparison data, this is uh, atypical, what last year during the mask use. And then like, well, okay, so how about another virus, respiratory syncytial virus? And again, uh, the same, this is from the CDC's data and these numbers are difficult to see, but this is that season when we were wearing the face coverings and we can see then that it started to change back uh, when uh, the face coverings started to uh, not be as worn as consistently. I mentioned the testing capacity. So Omicron, I do have to say there are a few things about it because I know some of the comments that have come in, people have said, well, Omicron, it's not serious. 
Well, I think the jury is still out on how serious it is because you saw that slide of how many people and the percent of our population that already have some vaccine protection. Um, but because the majority of the population has been vaccinated, then when they're infected, and because we have such widespread community transmission, it's not unexpected that everybody's going to be exposed and that there will be more breakthrough infections. And so the not being so serious might be weighed more heavily because we have so many people who have some uh, immune, uh, well, that they're not naive to it immune system-wise, that they have some uh, protection. And that likewise could go for people who had some prior protection from natural infection, but for people who have uh, their natural uh, antibody uh, and T cell response following vaccination, that's likely providing them some protection. What we don't know is for persons who have a naive immune system where they haven't been exposed to the virus before and they haven't been vaccinated, is their experience more or less serious or the same with the prior variants? So that I believe is still uh, waiting to be seen. And then um, uh, the treatments, as we mentioned earlier, waiting to see uh, how effective that will be and mentioned monoclonals. And so if you do wanna know, so we did have some discussion in some of the comments that came in about uh, event sizes. I'm just providing this here for other people to, for your awareness and for other people to be able to see the Georgia Institute of Technology. They have a COVID-19 event risk tool. So in this example here for an event size of 50 persons in Frederick County with the current transmission level and with the vaccination percent that we have, uh, that if you were in a room with 50 people, there is an 88% uh, risk that somebody in the room is currently infectious with COVID-19. Now, that makes some assumptions, but it at least is a way to give people uh, some idea of what the relative risk is and how that changes by person size. So you can go to their website and you can use the slider bar and see how it changes if there are 25 people, if there are 100 people, just to give you an idea. So again, all these things, multiple layers of protection through success, some are personal responsibilities, some are shared community responsibilities. Um, you know, starting with if you have symptoms, if you're sick, please distance from other people, stay home, uh, try to reduce your amount of time in general with folks who are outside of your household, uh, especially if you are uh, uh, at risk for having serious complications, uh, you know, the ventilation, outdoors better than indoors, uh, vaccination, so vaccination from the information presented, uh, that I think makes a compelling um, reason for vaccinations being effective and uh, still waiting to uh, get better information on prior persons who had a prior infection, especially a year ago, uh, and how they might fare with Omicron. So we do want people to enjoy their holidays safely, uh, begin paying attention to those uh, multiple layers and what you can do during the holiday season. So. The more people you're around, the greater the likelihood that somebody is currently infectious. Uh, the longer the time you spend with them, the greater the likelihood that you are getting in a, a significant enough, enough dose to have an exposure turn into an infection and have it be an infection where it's going to take a little bit longer for your immune system to get all the virus particles that are uh, detected. Uh, and uh, wearing a mask indoors helps to reduce if you're the one who potentially is uh, shedding virus, 
It will uh, help. It won't completely eliminate. I should say all those layers are imperfect layers, and that's why it's important to have a multi-layered strategy. So if you wear a face covering, then hopefully if you're the one who doesn't realize that you're ill, hopefully you can um, uh, be uh, spreading uh, less virus to other people, reducing the viral load that people would be exposed to. And likewise, if you're the one wearing the face covering, but it's somebody else who's currently infectious, hopefully you'll receive a low enough of viral load if you become exposed that uh, your immune system will be able to fight it off uh, very well. Um, so that is uh, it for the uh, presentation. I think you've all asked a lot of questions already. Um, I do know that we had at least 25 uh, people on the line and 10 messages and at three minutes apiece. I think that's putting us, let's see, 35 times three. We are going to be here quite a long time because we do want to hear from the public. Uh, so I'm going to uh, make a statement in case some of the public joined us late to let folks know. Uh, and especially those who are on the line, that if you've already submitted information to us via email or left a voicemail message from the time this meeting was announced to when this meeting started, we will make your comments uh, part of the public record. So you don't need to continue to wait on the line to be able to speak now because uh, we are adding all of that to the public record uh, already. For you so you don't need to wait on the phone line for us. Okay, um, so for the Board of Health members, before we move on to the third agenda item, which is discussion of the proposed regulations, do you have any other questions about what I presented? Council Member Hagan? Uh, just one sort of question. The the Swiss cheese graphic or the multi-layers of protection graphic that you showed in, which I've seen before, you've showed it before. Um, I mean, it's an excellent graphic, but it has the sort of things you can do, and then there's the things that, you know, the community or whatever does. It almost seems like masks should be at both, and it's relevant to this discussion we're going to have, because it should be at this end and in this other end, because, you know, you made the point that uh, with the masks, you're something you can do that reduces the chance of spread, but the other part that you don't control that isn't part of your own action, that is a community action, is other people wearing masks. So even if you have a mask, you are at greater risk of either spreading or getting uh, infected if other people are not. And so it's kind of, there should be a kind of another mask slice of cheese on that other side. I don't know if you, it just seemed like since we're going to be talking about that, um, that's a key factor. I mean, because it's two different ways of looking at the impact of, of masks. It's, you know, we hear so much about if you want to wear one, you wear one. But, you know, that's not the only factor related to masks. And, I, you know, you mentioned that. I just thought it, it was worth emphasizing and maybe they could stick a mask slice in there on the other side. Yes, you raise a good point, and I do sometimes stumble over it because uh, so many people are taking these protective measures themselves, not because they're concerned about their personal risk, but they are concerned about their potentially uh, exposing to others because especially if, if uh, the prior variants and the current variant where people have mild to no symptoms, but yet if they're able to 
to spread it to other people during that time period, either before symptoms begin or for people who don't have any symptoms, if they're able to spread it, uh, you know, then they could unknowingly be doing that. And so taking these protective measures, precautions all the time uh, would be beneficial. It's just like people wear seatbelts uh, all the time because you don't know when you're going to get in a crash. If you knew when you were going to get in a crash, you'd probably avoid it. So, um, but anyway, um, I will um, uh, move on to the next agenda item. Now, I put the, I have it in a slide, and when I am going through the slides and talking through it, I imagine there might be some amount of discussion that all of you will want to have. So I'd like to ask Council President Keegan Air, would you be willing to chair this portion of the meeting while I'm going through the slides? Sure. Um, that will allow you, I guess, to see. I'll, I'll focus on who's on the screen raising their hand, and that will allow you to focus on your um, presentation. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, Councilmember McKay? I'm just going to suggest, I mean, before we dive into what could be a long discussion, could we, uh, is this time for a five-minute break? <laughs> um, we don't. We can't take a five-minute break because it requires the video services people to shut down and then come back on. Um, we usually take ten minutes or something, but maybe um, because we have the um, maybe we can get through our discussions and then take a break before we start taking public comment because um, I think our discussions may be longer after public comment than they will be before public comment. Let's put it that way. Hmm. And what I'll try to do then, if you do end up taking a break, I'll try to display maybe something that would be a benefit to people who are viewing. So we'll, we'll That's a good idea. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So officially, uh, Council President uh, Keegan Air, uh, thank you. I will now give you the virtual the virtual yeah. gavel. Thank you for uh, Take it sharing away. now. And uh, if you would like, I uh, will move on to share my screen so people can see what it is that we uh, have as the proposed uh, regulation for discussion tonight, um, since not everybody in the viewing audience has necessarily seen that. Sound all right? Yes, see the screen, the one screen, okay. Um, so the proposed regulation is limited to uh, face coverings and the face covering definition will look a lot like the face covering definition that was used before. In fact, it is the definition used before and it was the one that you might recall was adapted from what Governor Hogan had had. Um, so face covering, uh, and that's fully covering person's nose and mouth. Um, and uh, the requirement would be all persons aged five years and older in all indoor public spaces accessible to the public where the person's unable to consistently maintain at least six feet of distance from individuals who are not members of their household. Uh, there was an evolution of all of that uh, in the past, and I know that we've discussed a lot of that in the past, but I will just go through the regulations right now. Then the other major section is the exceptions section, which again are the exceptions that had been in the prior one and uh, were adapted from what the governor's 
uh, orders had had before. So this uh, should be familiar with everybody that there are exceptions for it. And then the applicability that this would apply countywide, except for within the corporate boundary of Mount Airy. And um, then the severability that it, uh, at this point, would uh, uh, remain in effect until it's uh, changed. And then the effective date would be something that would be decided by the Board of Health. So that's what I have for that. Okay, does anyone have any questions for Dr. Brookmeyer on that? Okay, Councilmember Higgins. Uh, is there any consideration, is there a minimum number of days that need to transpire before it can be put into effect? I mean, technically, we, we may have that discussion what's reasonable or best, but is there a legal minimum or could it be in effect, you know, tomorrow? I'd like to ask Mr. Black to comment on that, please. Certainly. Uh, the question regarding when this could go into effect. How soon? It could go into effect as soon as tomorrow. Okay. That's, so we, we, that our discussion is open-ended in that regard, then. We don't have a starting point a week from now or something. Okay. Correct. And the effective date is blank on the regulation right now. Right. Okay. Um, and I think what Councilmember Hagel was asking is, is there a limitation on how quickly we can put it into effect? And uh, Mr. Black has said no. Okay, Council Member Daisy. Yeah, so I can't help but notice there's no no enforcement mechanism on this regulation. So, I mean, it almost wouldn't matter when we put it into effect, right? Because what would be the penalty for violating it and how is it going to be enforced? These are the questions that, you know, we, we kind of ran up against last month and the month before we talked about mass mandates. And I think as a body, we collectively said, you know, we, we shouldn't be passing legislation that is unenforceable, essentially. And, you know, we can make recommendations, but again, you know, does it matter when it's effective if there's no enforceability or what's the penalty? So is that a question for Dr. Brookmeyer or is that just a comment just in general? I mean, that's a question for anyone who could answer it. I mean, there's no penalty for violating. So what is, what does it matter what the effective date is? Okay, um, Dr. Like would you like to, to try and wait, but I'll get to you in just a second. Doc, I'm going to let Dr. Brookmeyer see if she wants to address it first. If not, no, don't worry. Okay, she's waving me off. So, oh, that, sorry, that was a guess. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, for businesses, they may want some time to put signage up. So, if we were to say by midnight tonight, assuming we are done with the meeting by midnight tonight, uh, that would probably be too soon for the businesses. So being thoughtful for the businesses and being able to time, uh, have time to put up signage if they don't already have signage or modify the signage that they do have. And make other provisions in case they have customers who uh, don't have face coverings or staff. Okay, um, Colony Executive and then Council Member Hagan. Um, well, I think Councilman Hagan was first. I, I'm happy to let him defer to him. Okay, Councilmember Hagan, and then County Executive Gardner. Okay, thank you, Jen. Um, the uh, 
I don't know that we all agreed collectively that you know enforceability meant. You know, we were some of us were deferring to the public health expert, but had serious concerns about this. But raised the subject then um, about this issue when this subject came up. Then we raised the point. Uh, I know I did. I think there were others who you know share that uh, sense that. Uh, and we we're getting emails from people, businesses that are saying, you know, please, you know, re establish the mask mandate because it's very difficult. We've had, you know, customers don't want to come in when everybody doesn't have to. If we make it optional, if we don't, we're under a lot of pressure. You Well, you've read some of those emails. I assume you've been reading the emails. Um, but I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the fact that we don't have people around enforcing everything means that some people won't wear mass when they ought to but businesses theaters events churches a lot of those places will and and they will put up signage expected of their people and and personally or you know separately enforce it to varying uh degrees but uh they will now be able to rely on that broader public health mandate to, you know, essentially assist that their customers uh, wear it. And we've had businesses asking for it, even if a representative of the Chamber of Commerce might have suggested otherwise. The, we're certainly hearing from businesses, and I've heard from others that have not emailed us collectively, that that would take a lot of pressure off and would help. And it, the notion that this is bad for business is somehow nuts. I mean, we're asking people to simply wear a mask while they're inside a store for a short while. But, um, you know, enforceability, don't you think, Phil, that more churches and businesses and events and other gatherings and places of gathering will uh, be more likely to have a much higher level of compliance, even if there's not a police officer or somebody there who's going to find them or arrest them if they don't comply. Do you not believe it will have an impact? Seriously? I mean, it's not that I don't think it's going to have an impact. I do think that there are probably going to be unintended consequences, though, where people are going to, it could create more conflict. In other words, you know, what do you do if somebody says, no, I'm not, well, it's the law. You have to do it. Well, what if, I'm not going to do it. So what are you going to do? Call the sheriff? What are you going to do? Call the health department? There's no penalty. So. I mean, it could, in, in a sense, escalate certain conflicts. I mean, obviously, people right now have a choice of whether or not to require masks and there are places that do and there are places that don't. And essentially, we, they would still have that choice because if you pass a law that says you have to do it, but there's no consequences for not doing it, then you still have that choice. I mean, there's going to be people, people that comply and people that don't. But okay, so I think there's Tony, a possibility to escalate conflict. That's all. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of passing laws that are unenforceable. Okay, so we're going to County Executive Gardner and then Councilmember Donald has his hand raised. <clears throat> um, we, I think, enforcement is always difficult, and enforcement of many of the laws in our county are done by complaint. And when I talk to other other of our larger county um, um, county executives. Um, they feel that most people actually do comply with the mandate and that they really haven't seen a problem. I will say that when we had a penalty before, and we could certainly reserve the right, we could have language reserve the right to enforce it and to have a civil penalty, which we had before, 
we never assessed the civil penalty to everybody because it really wasn't about assessing a civil penalty. It was about trying to get people to comply and wear a mask. And that's really the objective of this. So I really do feel that we have to really heighten to people in our community the fact that COVID is now um, in a different place than it was a couple months ago when we talked about this. I never thought that we would ever have a day where we would have 646 new cases in one day. Our record before this, during last winter's peak, was in the 200s. Our peak for a week would be 14 or 1500 cases. Right now, we are projected in the next couple of weeks to go up to 14 or 1500 cases, new cases in a 24 hour period. We are really projected to see a significant spread of COVID like we have never seen before. And I believe it, as leaders in this community is our responsibility to do what we can do to protect public health and welfare. We raise our right hand to do that. And will some people not want to comply? Sure. Um, to just give them a civil citation, we had to get their name and address, which they weren't going to necessarily want to give to us. So I think we have to do a mask mandate um, or a mask requirement and have it enforced and by businesses and organizations and by self-compliance to as much as we possibly can do and reserve the right to um, do compliance should we I find a situation where we need to do that. But um, we're just in a very different place where we've ever been before. And we have the support of our hospital, our major healthcare entity in this community, supporting us doing a, a mask requirement. This is what our healthcare providers are trying to do so that our hospital system and our healthcare system across the county isn't more overwhelmed than it is today. And I think we have to do that to protect our community. So that's my two cents on it. It's not going to be perfect, um, but we are in a place where we have to take bold action. And those are the exact words of our hospital. Okay, thank you very much, um, Council Member Donald. Thank you. Yeah, when we talked about this two months ago and I wanted to do something like this, I, I, I agree with what Kai just said, is that a lot of businesses will voluntarily enforce it. But if you really want to have an enforcement mechanism, uh, I would say go after the organizations, not the individuals. It's the way you handle liquor laws or cigarettes or things like that. You know, you want to keep selling this stuff, you have to abide by the rules. So, okay, you know, your, your building says you can have X number of people. We'll get to that. You have more than that number of people, here's your first fine. Do it again, you might be shut down. Or that would, that would get people to comply. I don't want to do that, but I mean, that would get people to comply. Well, right now we're just discussing the mask mandate. So let's do it. Let's, call, let's focus on what the answer is. I was asked about, or somebody, you know, I've, I've hardly said a word tonight while we've gone off in interesting directions. So I was just responding that you can enforce it. You just don't go after the individuals because they're not going to get anything. But the business, you know what the name is. And if they don't serve customers like that, they will enforce it. Okay. So I am being notified that we have over two hours of public comment in um, already in line. So um, unless someone has a question about what Dr. Brookmeyer is proposing, let's go ahead and take public comment and then we can, okay, there's council member Dacey, you've already asked a question. I'm gonna move on to council member McKay. Um, I'm gonna let you ask a quick question and then we're gonna take the public comment because at this point, I really feel like we need to hear from the public and then we can come back and continue to debate the merits or the language. But at this point, I really think 
unless you have a question about what the proposal is, let's take public comment. So, Councilmember McKay. Yeah, I'll save the other comment for later. Uh, just in terms of uh, construction, I mean, this is a little slimmer than um, some of the other, you know, documents that we've worked on in the past. I'm just wondering, you know, we lack a definition for indoor public space. See, I see the phrase indoor public spaces accessible accessible to the public, and I kind of look at those as two separate things, you know, an indoor public space versus public accessibility, but we've not defined any of it in this document, and we don't have other regulations at the state level to lean upon to define those things anymore, I don't think. I'm just wondering if we've adequately defined what that actually means um, in terms of what the mask requirement means. And at this point, I will ask Mr. Black, would you like to comment? Do we need a definition of indoor public spaces accessible to the public? Not necessarily. Go ahead. Am I unmuted? Yes. Not necessarily. You could. Um, I believe it's kind of a self-explanatory phrase of indoor public space. You could add a definition if you wanted to, but as it's written, you would not necessarily need to. All right, because I thought there were definitions previously, you know, that defined it. And I know we've had lots of conversation about, you know, you know, a catering hall hosting a private party versus one over the public. I mean, there's the devil's in the details and, and whose, whose facility is subject to this. Um, I just wonder if we're, if, if we have those answers at work, because I don't think it's going to be readily apparent necessarily in just the words that are here. So I think before, when the governor had several orders in place, the definitions became very convoluted, and that was the reason that we had gotten into all of those details in the past. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So um, I, unless there is another specific question about this proposal, let's move on and take public council. Member Dacey, you have a specific question about this proposal. Yeah, about the language, just in that same section, the, and I'm, again, I'm not sure how much this matters because right now there's no enforcement on it, but the six feet distance where you're unable to consistently maintain, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I go to Wise by Amber Meadows and Weekend, I can easily consistently maintain six feet of distance from people um, because it's not crowded, but, you know, what's the intent there? I mean, that, like, that kind of language, does that mean... If somebody comes closer to me, am I in violation? Or, you know, can I walk into an empty grocery store without a mask if there were? So maybe that's a question for us to debate after we hear from the public, because that's not necessarily, um, I think that was just pulled from what we had had before. So let's hold that one and we'll discuss it when we come back. Are there any other questions about what's um, being proposed in this regulation? If not, it's nine o'clock. If we got two hours of public comment, that's going to take us to 11. So let's go ahead and take public comment right now, um, and then we'll move back and discuss the merits and the specifics of this regulation as it's being proposed. Is that agreeable with everyone? Okay. Yes. Can we also ask people to be brief if they're just agreeing with others? Like that, that two hours might only be an hour or less if people are only using a minute or two. We could ask people if you have already sent, and I think Dr. Brookmeyer already did this, if you have already sent us your comments via email, um, you don't need to stay on the line and give us your comments again. If you have sent us your comments by email and you just want to say, I already sent my comments in, I just want to reiterate them, that's perfect. Or you can just say, 
I support, I'm opposed, but it, the quicker you can get your comments out, the more people we can take in a more time-efficient um, fashion. So at this point, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Brookmeyer, um, and if she wants assistance later on, I'm going to be here. I'm here all night. Try the veal. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And so uh, thank you for uh, chairing that and for passing it back, the virtual gavel. So for members of the public, so uh, from the number of people who are in line and have been waiting on the line maybe about two hours, uh, plus people who have left messages, that equals about two hours of time if everybody takes three minutes. Uh, if there are others who want to join the queue, uh, public comments will be accepted uh, on the portal or by calling uh, toll-free 855-925-2801. That's 855-925-2801. And entering the meeting code 8751 to enter the queue for live public comment during the meeting. Uh, and so now I would like to ask that the calls be queued up and uh, ask everybody's uh, patience as we do that because it's a new process for the health department staff to be familiar with because we don't have the uh, uh, long experienced troubleshooting staff that the council is able to benefit from. So without further uh, delay, I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Watkins to queue up uh, the first callers, if we could go with the callers first who've been waiting online, and then we will play the recorded messages at the end of the uh, queue for live messages. Thank you. Can I right, and a reminder for everybody, it's three minutes. I'm not sure if everybody hears the timer. Uh, on our end, but the callers, I believe, should hear the timer, and if you don't, uh, we will be cutting people off at three minutes because we have so many people and we want to be able to get to everybody before it's midnight uh, or even 11 o'clock, so we will be, uh, when the timer goes off, uh, the call manager will be uh, disconnecting the call so that we can get on to the next one. 